the question that I asked earlier, am I a man, am I a father, am I a husband, so on and so forth, I, I am those things, but the scripture does point to me, to us, being something much greater than that. That our identity is not found in those things, but our identity is found in something much grander than that. My fatherness, my husbandness, my straightness, these are nothing more than characteristics or orientations that I carry. You see, biblical identity is not what we do, it's not even how we do it. My identity, our identity, is connected to and rooted in Jesus Christ. If you read this text, which you guys did, and and you guys shouted out some things, there were more things that it said, but did you really hear what this text says? Did you pick it up? That the body is meant for the Lord, that we are raised up by his power, that our bodies are members of Christ, that he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, that we are not our own, but that we are bought with a price. Think about the picture that this scripture is painting about our true identities. Our identities are one with Christ. My identity is who I am, and who I am is hidden in Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is another passage that speaks to this. Let me read it to you. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, I I think we sometimes forget just how profound this idea really is. Too often we chalk up our Christianness to just another characteristic that we carry, another characteristic that we have, that I'm a Christian, but I'm also a vegetarian, but I'm also a Republican, that those things are all the same things. But our identity being in Christ is so much more than the things that we desire. It's so much more than the relational roles that we play. It's so much more than just the simple ways that we look. We are raised with Christ. Our lives become hidden in Christ. These are really, really profound and powerful statements that the scripture is speaking to us. Our identity is that which gives us purpose. It moves us. It separates us. Something radical happens when we begin to trust Christ. Our identities become united and hidden with the Lord of the universe. That is powerful. That is incredibly powerful. The scripture says that we're given a new identity, that the old is gone and the new has come. And here, I think this is something interesting to think about. It doesn't say that the old gets made new. It says that the old is gone and that the new has come. We are now redeemed, reconciled, forgiven, loved, and victorious. And it's these things, these realities that shape our action, they shape our character, and they shape our desires. Now there should be a little bit of tension when we read this because sometimes our desires don't seem to be the same desires that Jesus has. We are given that new identity, one that does not change, one that does not fade. However, that's not the end of the story, and this is why I believe Colossians continues in 5 through 11 saying this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and absence talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, seeking that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The reality of being given a new identity is that we work to honor this new identity that we've been given. Knowing that because we are linked with Christ, we are united with Christ, we are hidden with Christ, we carry his name now. And we seek to honor his name in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words. This being the very process of sanctification or being made holy. Our identity is that of being redeemed, reconciled, forgiven and loved and victorious but it's the reality of this identity that causes us to strive to become holy as Christ was holy. So I think this uh, piece of identity is where society and oftentimes the church has kind of missed the mark. We get swept up in the current that we are defined by our sexuality. And I believe this is where some of the breakdown comes between the dialogue, or in many ways the debate between the subject of homosexuality and heterosexuality. This is where the tension starts to lie. I want to just take a moment and talk about the subject of homosexuality for a second because I think it's pertinent to this idea of identity and pertinent to the subject of sexuality. I think we as the church get it wrong when we define or view our identity through the lens of our orientation. Too often, we do that. Orientation does not define our identity. Orientation does not even have to define our action. See, in my opinion, sexual orientation is not wrong, regardless of the orientation. The action upon the orientation is what's wrong. Any sex outside of marriage is missing the mark. Paul makes that very clear. Many other passages make that clear. So whether it's heterosexual sex or homosexual sex, it's always outside of the confines of marriage is absolutely inappropriate. The scriptures, again, make that very clear. But I think where we've gotten it wrong is the church has for a long time tried to crusade the cause of the wrongness of homosexuality. We try to elevate it and rise it above other sin. And so we say things like, and maybe you've heard this language from the church, that people just have to know that it's wrong. We have to make it very clear or very obvious. I think... If you were to take a poll or a survey of anyone with a homosexual orientation, I would guess that a large, high, high percentage would be very clear that the church knows or believes that it's wrong, right? I mean, that's not up for debate. I think they're well aware of it because of the way we've communicated it and talked about it, often in ways that are less than appropriate. So for us to point it out any further, I think, just continues to drive a wedge Uh, where it's not needed. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. It's not a sin that makes you not a Christian. It's not a sin that's any more sinful than any other sin. In fact, Jesus, when he begins to talk about this um, idea of sin, says that whatever sin you have, you're to view it as the most grievous. And whatever sin someone else has, you're to view it as insignificant. That's the posture we're called to have when it comes to any sin that we see in someone else. Billy Graham was asked about homosexuality, and I think he makes a great statement that I think should in many ways be the posture of the church. 
He says this, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge and my job to love. I think when we speak into this idea of identity, we understand that this is the posture we're called to have. This is the posture we're to lean into. Everybody take a deep breath. I make it a little note in here that I'm supposed to make this transition not awkward, but it's going to be awkward. <laughs> we're going to get back into the identity piece now. We're going to talk about this idea of personhood. Because I think it's critical that we understand our biblical identity, but as we live within the world that we live, we need to have a generous understanding of this idea of personhood. Genesis states that we, everyone, are created in the image of God. And therefore, every single person, Christian or not, evil and kind, sexually pure and sexually immoral, holds value. The value of being created and loved by God. This truth means all people deserve a certain amount of respect, whether they earn it or not, because they were, in fact, created in the image of God. This also means that our understanding of others needs to reflect this biblical truth, meaning that we see and value people as people, not as their characteristic, not as the way they look, not as their orientation. One of the ways, a really practical way this fleshes itself out is in this idea of person-first language, which I first learned from my wife, who was a special ed teacher. This, this idea has really been championed by one of our missional partners, um, Cup of Cool Water. They work with uh, kids, home, uh, kids that are homeless <laughs> in Spokane, and they make it a point to use person-first language. Instead of saying street youth, they say youth on the street. Instead of saying homeless youth, they say youth without a home. That's a significant switch. They're not identifying kids by the characteristic that they have, by the reality that they have. So we don't see people as a white person or as a Down syndrome person, but a person who is white or a person who has Down syndrome. This may, again, seem like a little thing, but it is, it's a significant switch in how we view and understand people. And just by changing our script I believe that our minds, the way that we value people, begins to change alongside that. By speaking and thinking in this way, we exclaim our value of people before the value of what people do or who people are. I know person-first language and personhood does not have a lot to do with this idea of sexuality. Maybe it seems like a stretch. But I think it does have a lot to do with it in the way that the church has traditionally treated the homosexual community. I, <clears throat> several years ago, uh, a really good friend of mine, one of my best friends, uh, came up to me, and we were in an accountability relationship for over three years, and uh, in the midst of that, we had shared a lot of who we are with each other. And I remember he came to this one point where he said, hey, I really need to talk to you, and we went, and uh, we sat down together, and he began to share with me that, his, uh, that he had a homosexual orientation. And uh, he shared it after three years of being accountability partners. He finally mustered up the courage, the trust, the level that was needed to be able to say, I'm just going to put it all out on the table, and I'm going to have this conversation with you. And it was, I can still like vividly remember the scene. I can remember where we are. I can remember the conversation. And I remember some of the very things that I said. One of the first things I said is, I love you. That doesn't change. That will never change. 
Also, I'm your friend, and I'll continue to always be your friend. Also, you are still my brother in Christ. Regardless of your orientation, you're still a follower of Jesus. You're committed to Jesus. You love him with all of your heart. And this sin is like other sin. And I remember we had this conversation. We are kind of going back and forth. And then it dawned on me that perhaps in some way over the period of our relationship, I had known him for probably five plus years, that I am sure in some way I could have offended him. That my friends could have offended him. That the church could have offended him. So I remember having this conversation where I just said, okay, I, I just need to stop and I just want to say on behalf, me representing the church at large, even though I'm a poor representation of that, I apologize for the way that we have treated many people that should be treated with absolute love and respect and we have mishandled the way that we've treated and spoken about and talked about. And Perhaps you've felt that. And I am sorry if in any way I've offended you and if the church has offended you. And then I went on to say, I, I don't know if I've ever, and, and please tell me if I have, but if I've ever been in a situation in which I got caught up in joking or making fun of or speaking inappropriately, would please forgive me. And we began to have a conversation that centered on the idea of love and centered on the, the idea that all of us are one in Christ, all of us are equal, that one sin is not more grievous than another sin. And, and I think it's so important to this subject of identity to recognize that first and foremost we're children of God, that our identity is wrapped up in who He is and what He's done for us, and that we are people first, image of God first, orientation later, image of God first, Race, later. Image of God, first. Gender, later. These are things that we often try to label and define people by. And I think we miss the mark. That in itself is probably equally as grievous as the sin. And so we find ourselves in this situation where we speak to this idea that the core of what we're talking about when we talk about sexuality is identity. I think it's impossible to intelligently and biblically speak about sexuality until we understand this idea of identity. But there is another elephant behind the elephant of sexuality, and it's about the act of sex itself. So let's, uh, let's go back to the text. You're going to break back into those small groups. Read that scripture again if you need to, or, or just uh, kind of scan it again. And here's what I want the, the question I want you to ask and, and begin to talk about. What does the passage say about sex? about the act itself. What does the passage speak to that? So go ahead and break into those groups. We'll give you a couple minutes. All right, we could uh, regather. So talk to us again about the passage. What does it say specific to the act or to the idea of sex? We talked about identity the first time we looked at it. This time we're looking at it through a different lens. Talk to us about that. Give us one or two. It's something that joins together. Okay, it's something that joins together. Good. Big deal. It's a big deal. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> Any others? It's spiritual. And you should get up here and give this talk. No, you should get it. No. 
It affects your own body. Good. These are all great, great statements. We see throughout the text, not only does it speak to our identity, but it also speaks to the very act of sex. It talks about specifics. And then it gives us what I think is a a pretty clear posture toward sexual immorality. It says very simply, flee it. Flee sexual immorality. What's interesting is Paul uses a specific, a very specific term for sexual immorality in this passage. He doesn't use the term for adultery. He could have simply said that if you're married to someone and you sleep with someone else or have sex, engage in sex with someone else, that you're guilty of breaking or having sexual immorality. Instead, he uses a specific term that means any sex outside of marriage. So, any sex outside of marriage or being physically intimate with anyone that you're not married to, regardless of whether you're single or married, anything that fits that category, then you are guilty or you have not run away from sexual immorality. Now, I think too often when the church speaks to this idea of sexual immorality, it talks specifically to the physical side of it. So we say things, I'll throw up just a couple of passages really quick. Romans 6 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, or don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Next, 1 Thessalonians 4. It is God's will. You've probably heard this hundreds of times. It is God's will. You want to know what God's will is? God's will is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you control your own body, that you don't just allow it to be um, wicked, but rather in honor and in holiness. We speak a lot to the physical side of sex. But what's interesting in Paul's statement here in this particular passage is that he doesn't just address the physical. He doesn't say, flee from sexual immorality simply because of the act of sex. Rather, he says, flee from sexual immorality because sex is spiritual. It's a... Sex doesn't make sense to us unless we understand it as holy. Paul makes it clear in this passage by talking about a one flesh union. He says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. Now don't get hung up on that word. It means, shall I engage with a different sexual partner? Never. Nor do you not know that he who is joined with another sexual partner becomes one body with her. For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. What is very clear and very obvious in this passage is that Paul is not just talking about the physical act of sex. He's also talking about the spiritual side. Because if he was talking about just the physical act, he would say, This is how you would read the passage. Don't you know that if you've joined your body with someone, that you've joined your body with someone? That would make no sense. Instead, he says, don't you know that you've joined your body and therefore have become one flesh? Now, the term flesh means embodied personhood. An embodied personhood. So when you have sex with someone, what is really happening is a personal transformation is happening at some level. That it's not just a physical act, but that there is a spiritual component to it. It's an act of the body and the soul. See, God did not intend for sex just to be a means of procreation, or even sex just for sexual gratification. Sex is intended to be the giving of yourself fully to another. Tim Keller describes sex as radical self-donation. Radical self-donation. He says this, Sex is God's 
invented way to give yourself to someone else so deeply that it results in personal transformation. See, sex is a commitment that involves the entire person, not just your parts. I think in our culture, what we've done is we've reduced sex to fluid exchange. We've just made it about friends with benefits. Just made it about hooking up with someone regardless of who they are. If we live in a culture that believes that you can have sex with your body and it does not affect your soul. And I think what that does is it dishonors an incredibly sacred moment. Sex is the full giving of oneself to another. And because of that, sex is spiritual. So we've covered the two elephants that seem to be behind the elephant of sexuality. First, the elephant of identity. That both in our identity in Christ and the identity that all humanity shares in personhood. And second, the elephant that sex is in fact spiritual. To understand these things, we believe, means that we can better understand sexuality. But because this is such a toxic and misunderstood topic, we believed it would be, we would be remiss if we didn't add a few practical applications to how this stuff fleshes itself out once we go from here. We could uh, probably talk for hours about practical applications, but we think a lot of the practical applications of anything we talk about up front or anything anyone talks about up front should be discussed. You should have conversation that around small group you begin to dialogue on these subjects. That's been the goal of this whole series, is to put these subjects out on the table and let us together as a community continue to wrestle with them. Well, we want to give just two specifics. The first one is this, practical advice number one, do not awaken love. There's a passage in the Song of Solomon by the uh, wisest man that ever lived. And he says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Do not awaken love until it pleases. It's a simple principle, yet probably hard to follow. I'll break it down really simple. Okay, do not. It's a warning. Okay. <laughs> Something to, recommended to avoid. Very simple. Okay. Do not awaken Awaken means to bring to life. In our conversation, arouse, right? It means to, to really spark or, or ignite something that maybe perhaps you're not prepared to ignite. So do not awaken. This is where I think this idea of awaken in, in demands intentionality. It demands intentionality. Let me speak to the guys here for a moment. I think your intentions and the decisions you make... Uh, ultimately lead you to conclusions, whether you think so or not. I don't know how many guys I've had conversation with that at the end of the conversation, they're like, wow, and then we just happened to end up in bed together. You didn't just happen to end up in bed together. Okay? It doesn't work that way. There were about 20, maybe 30 conscious decisions you made along the way where you continued to awaken love. Some of you are at the point where you awaken love before you even go out for the night. What I mean by that is you've been awakening love with pornography, or beyond that, you just already know the intention of your heart is to get laid tonight, really. And so you go out with that intention. Others of you, you go out innocently enough, but then you begin to make choices. You awaken love when you invite 
her back to your place. You awaken love again when you start making out. You awaken love again when you start taking your clothes off. You continue to awaken love again and again and again. And then you go, I don't know how this happened. You know how it happened. Okay? It's obvious. But you have to make the decision early. You cannot wait and say, oh, once it's awoken, once it's riled up, once you're at that place, that you can just then go, oh, well, we'll just make a decision then. No, you have to make it early, like before you go out for the night. Or you need to make it before you invite her over. I was having a conversation with Asia the other day. He and I talked pretty frank. He probably knows where I'm going with this. (laughs) Guys, listen. I'll just be very blunt with you. If you wait to make the decision until you're already hard, it's too late. Too many decisions are made at that point, and they're all negative. They're not good. They don't lead down the right path, right? Thank you. (laughs) One person agrees with us back there. (laughs) Every step you take is going to lead you somewhere. It's either going to lead you towards sex or it's going to lead you toward abstinence. There's no other way around it. Okay? Ladies, I would say along those same lines that sometimes um, you need to evaluate perhaps the signals you send. Now, I understand why you send signals. Guys are stupid. (laughs) I get it. But there's also a difference between a signal of like, I'm available versus I'm available. Right? There's a difference between like, I'm, I'm interested and like you can have your way with me. Those are two entirely different signals. And guys pick up those signals. We're not dumb when it comes to those signals. Right? So the way you interact with someone, maybe the way that you touch them, is either inviting more or is not. And again, it's this whole idea of what are we doing to awaken or to not awaken love. Let me end with this little phrase, do not awaken love until it pleases. The idea behind that is is until it's ready. That don't awaken love until it's ready. Until you're in a relationship where you're married and you can fully live into the beautiful, beautiful side of sex. That it is something that is holy and honorable within its proper context. But I think this is where the idea, until it so pleases, is hard in our society. Because we either tend to just give in and go, man, everybody's doing it, and I'm not, so maybe I should start. Or we, we start to get into the place where we just settle. Maybe we've been out of a relationship for long enough, or maybe we just haven't been in one, and we go, well, I know this guy is kind of a jerk, but nobody else is asking me out, so I might as well say yes. Or we get to the place where, you know, I know that God doesn't really love me, but at least he'll sleep with me. And then I'll feel like he does for a little while until that changes. And I think we see ourselves settle again and again and again. And I want to encourage you, don't settle. Is sex good? Absolutely. Is it amazing? Absolutely. Is it worth the wait? Absolutely. I will tell you this. I have never, ever, talk to a couple that has waited until they were married to have sex that says to me, totally wish I would have just given it away. I totally wish it would have been frivolous and nothing. I, I shouldn't have waited. No one. But I have talked to many a couple. Many a couple. 
that wish they could go back. Many a couple that it still affects their marriage. Many a couple that just is haunted by the idea. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. So don't awaken love until it pleases. Here's the, uh, the second practical application. We are to strive for purity above all and deliver grace to all. The perfect example of this in the scriptures is when Jesus interacts with a woman caught in adultery. This woman is brought before, this is John 8, the woman is brought before Jesus while an angry mob is clutching their stones. The religious authority of the day was looking to trap Jesus in his answer. And instead of giving the answer that they were seeking, he famously answers, those without sin can go ahead and throw that first stone. To this they all left, it says, the scripture says, first being the oldest people left first and the younger went after them. Then Jesus looks at the woman and says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, if Jesus were only concerned with being about grace, he would have protected the woman in that instance and then just let her go. But he leaves her with that emphatic statement, sin no more. I believe Jesus cares deeply for the purity of our lives. This is why I believe Matthew 5 is such a powerful section of Scripture. Jesus extrapolates beyond the law and sets the bar higher. He says this, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is where we have struggled in our pursuit of purity. I don't think we've set the bar high enough. You see, when we ask the question, how far is too far, that is fundamentally the wrong question to ask. The question of somebody who sets the bar high is this, how far can I stay from sexual immorality? How far can I remove myself from those temptations? If we were to truly consider ourselves followers of Christ, if we are to understand the reality that we carry His very identity in us, then our pursuit can be nothing less than this of total purity. Be graceful, though. This story also is one of the clearest responses of Jesus' grace. You see, the law spoke to the reality that this woman could be stoned, killed for her action, but Jesus offers a different way. He offers the way of grace. And this is the way that we should offer. How many of us would have been in that crowd holding stones in that moment? Maybe I'll say it this way. If I was to ask for those who have committed adultery in the audience to raise their hand, those of us not raising our hands, what would we have said to them? What would we have thought about those people? Or if I asked people in the crowd that have identified and acted upon a homosexual orientation, how many of us would have immediately felt pity or disgust for those sinners? Or are we graceful? Would we identify with them as sinners ourselves and in turn offer grace and acceptance in the very ways that Jesus offers grace and acceptance? Jesus was unwavering in his demand for purity, but his life was marked by and filled with grace for others. 
And our call as Christians is to follow him in these ways. Let me conclude with this. Similar to what C.S. Lewis stated in that very first quote that we read, much of what we talked about this morning probably isn't really popular. But I believe we have to honestly acknowledge that our culture has perverted, exploited, and misused sex. And in many ways, we have allowed ourselves as followers of Jesus to be swept down with this very same current. We need to remember that Jesus not only desires but demands more from us because we carry his identity. So let us move here today knowing that our identity truly lies in him, remembering that sex is much more than just a physical act, that it is spiritual. Let us pray together this morning. We'll invite up the band and they will sing one more song with us.